According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Hebrews. We are getting ready to conclude chapter 8. We're still uh, dealing with these issues in the new covenant, though. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8 as we tie together uh, the new covenant message here in verses 7 through 12. And then the conclusion in verse 13. <clears throat> Ask the Lord's faithfulness to keep my voice going for one more hour. We don't have an evening schedule tonight, so we're on kind of a reduced time anyway. And I can survive one more hour. <clears throat> so let's, uh, let's go to Him in prayer and uh, ask for His faithfulness of our time. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you. None of us deserves to be here, but we're here because of your Son and what he did on our behalf, Father. He accepted our sin. He accepted your wrath as the payment of our sin. The wages of sin is death, and he accepted that. And Father, we thank you now by virtue of our faith in Christ. We have life. We have righteousness. We can stand before you as adult sons with full privilege. We stand before you today studying to show ourselves approved, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we do give you the praise and glory for this day. We thank you for your son, for his virgin birth, for his sinless life, for his substitutionary death on the cross, for his resurrection and ascension, Father. I pray that you would open our eyes to understand these powerful truths, that we can live them out in our Melchizedek priesthood. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so really, we've been dealing with the New Covenant starting last week, really the week before, looking at verses 8 through 12. And you can read the same verses here in Hebrews 8 that you can read back in Jeremiah 31. It's a quotation from Jeremiah 31, mostly from the Septuagint, but with some free uh, renderings of of things that are different from the Septuagint rendering. And uh, that becomes a technical study at a point that we're not going to do here today. But I do believe that uh, the author of Hebrews very specifically departed from the Septuagint specifically because he wanted to stress aspects of mystery doctrine, aspects of church age reality that no Old Testament priest would have ever understood. Certainly no Septuagint translator would have understood. So letting that go for today, though, let's understand this new covenant, the blessings that Jesus had, the fact that he's, as the fault finder, said that first covenant is not eternal. Finding fault with that first covenant, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And we want to be very clear, this is not our covenant. We are not the house of Israel. We are not the house of Judah. And this is language that speaks to Israel in the Old Testament. After the death of Solomon, the Jewish nation was split. Jeroboam took 10 of the tribes and formed that northern kingdom of Israel. It was Rehoboam that only had the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin in the south. And so the, the, that they became known as the kingdom of Judah. Their capital was Jerusalem, like the capital was of the United Kingdom under David and Solomon. It's just they only had the two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. So there was a divided kingdom. And it's interesting here as we read it, because when Jeremiah was speaking, it was still a divided kingdom. And that's, that's reflected in the use of the house of Israel and the house of Judah in verse 8. And yet when he fulfills this promise, look what happens in verse 10. It is a reunited 
kingdom of Israel uh, combined. And so it says in verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. There's no mention of a separate uh, house of Judah at that point because he puts them together in the regathering of Israel in uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so we have the covenant language here, and it's important that we recognize this for what it is. It is given in the Old Testament. It is given before the church is revealed. The mystery is not revealed when this covenant is uttered. And so to try to make the church recipients of this covenant violates all of the laws of hermeneutics that we understand as far as interpreting Scripture. The new covenant is prophesied in the context of Jeremiah's numerous days or coming messages. I won't go back through this. This was a week ago. If you missed it, you can get the MP3 off the website and listen to it. But Jeremiah has numerous days or coming messages that point forward to their eschatology, to Israel's eschatology, not the church's eschatology. We are a different people and we have a different eschatology. And so days are coming when the righteous branch will sit and rule on the, on the throne of his father David. And that's the kingdom, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But days are coming. That's important. The context is the great tribulation of Israel, followed by the global regathering of Israel, followed by the founding of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's only in that kind of prophecy context that we can then say that he will make a covenant with the house of Israel in those days. And that becomes the application. He cannot be making it today. We're going to demonstrate that clearly. Israel is in the land, finally, after 1900 years. They're in the land, but they're in the land today in unbelief. The Jewish nation is not there repentant by faith in Jesus Christ. The Jewish nation is there today in rejection of Jesus Christ, in unbelief, as Isaiah 11 and other passages describe. So that's the context. Now I realize that there's an awful lot of uh, churches in our generation. There have been a lot of churches in, in, in recent centuries. Really it's, it's the dominant view. It's the Roman Catholic view. It became the Reformed view. It became the, the bulk of, uh, of Western Christendom holds the view that we have replaced Israel. We are now in the new covenant as church age believers. And that's the wrong view. Right? God's covenants still apply to Israel. They do not apply to the church. And we want to be very clear on that. The new covenant was, I failed to fix my typo there, was prophesied during the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, but when it goes into effect, it will be made with the reunited house of Israel. And I described for you that, that change from verse 8 to verse 10. If you go back to Jeremiah, you have the same exact change that happens there in Jeremiah 31. In between verse 31 and 33, it's the same exact language, where it's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the first reference, and then when he talks about its fulfillment, it's with the house of Israel. There's no more house of Judah when he reunites the two uh, divided kingdoms together. And if you think about it, it's kind of an interesting thing. As far as a phase of the Old Testament history is concerned, I believe it's the section of our Bibles we know the least. I think uh, we're fine from, from Genesis to, to Solomon. And then after that, when we get to the divided kingdom, we get to the captivity, certainly when we get to the post-captivity, I mean, who, who reads Chronicles? Who reads Ezra and Nehemiah? And some of these things that, uh, and, and, and Habakkuk and Haggai and Zechariah, some of those are realms of the Old Testament we are not as familiar with, and we need to get more familiar with them. That divided kingdom is what sets the stage for the return of the Messiah. 
And some of these fulfilled prophecies require us to understand that that divided kingdom will be a divided kingdom no more. All right. Um, Also, I hope you don't think of them as um, the southern kingdom is the good kingdom, the northern kingdom is the bad kingdom. While true, they were idolaters in the north. I'm not going to dispute that. They were idolaters. However, it was a Jewish kingdom. Let's not forget the fact that the eternal promises to Israel are to all 12 tribes of Israel. And so Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun and all those guys in the north, all right, they are still the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are still the chosen people. They are still destined for eternal blessings. And so think of it in that, in that sense. So while they were divided and while the northern kingdom was idolatrous, they remain, the, God didn't replace them in the Old Testament and He certainly hasn't replaced them now. He will regather them and put them together for the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Finally, I hope we understand what the new covenant is a replacement of. What it says and what it doesn't say become important. The new covenant supersedes the Mosaic covenant. That right there tells you volumes. And it was, and will be made with those whose fathers were redeemed out of Egypt and given the Mosaic covenant. In case we weren't crystal clear on this last week, it wasn't the church that walked through the Red Sea. It wasn't the church that was in bondage in Egypt that got redeemed out of Egypt. It wasn't the church that stood at the Mount Sinai and received the Mosaic law. It was Israel. And it was Israel for a purpose, Israel for a season. And that season is about done. It's obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. The Mosaic Covenant was never designed to be eternal. And that's uh, maybe one of the bigger takeaways we've got we to depart chapter 8 with before we get into chapter 9. So the New Covenant will supersede the Mosaic Covenant and be made with those whose fathers were redeemed out of Egypt. Not with us. Okay, The church's fathers. Does the church even have fathers? Not biblically speaking, okay? We've assigned that title to, this, we call them the church fathers, but that was assigned to them in later church history, centuries after the New Testament was complete. The New Testament, the body of Christ, the church was built upon the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Biblically speaking, the church doesn't have fathers, but Israel does. And Romans 9 actually addresses that as well. So I'm going to build on this and move past this. I hope we haven't lost anybody, or if so, we can, we can clear it up on a question and answer night at some point. But recognize in the vast uh, scheme of God's dealings with the Jewish people, he's done so on the basis of covenants. And it started with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. It started with Abraham and a promise 400 years before Mosaic law. And this was critical doctrine that we study in the book of Galatians. Because Galatians asked the question, why the law? <laughs> Why is the law given 430 years after, after promise? It, it seems to be a backward step. It seems to be incongruent with the aspects of promise. And that's worthwhile not only answering the question in a Galatians study, but answering that same question here in a Hebrew study. Because Mosaic law given in Moses' day does not invalidate the promise previously given to Abraham. Are we clear on that? The eternal promises remain eternal promises. If an eternal promise ends, it's not an eternal promise. I mean, that just kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? But if you have eternal life, when does that end? Trick question, okay? Because I said it was eternal. Same thing with an eternal covenant. It cannot end. And the giving of a Mosaic law afterwards does not invalidate an eternal covenant 
previously given. We've got to be clear on that. And so if, you, if you've ever studied Abrahamic covenant, you know it centers on land, seed, and blessing. You know that it has three broad parameters, land, seed, and blessing. And those parameters get expanded. The seed gets expanded in the Davidic covenant. The blessing gets expanded in the, in the uh, uh, new covenant. All right? But these land components, the land element, this actually got a supplement in terms of Mosaic law whereby the Jewish people were instructed how could they live in their land for blessing? Conversely, how could they live in their land for discipline? And that's why the Mosaic law was a conditional covenant. That's why it was if you obey me, we'll do this. If you disobey me, we'll do that. They even rehearsed the blessings and the cursings before they ever went in to possess the land. They stood on those mountains and they recited them back and forth. See, six of the tribes stood on this mountain, six of the tribes stood on that mountain. They recited the blessings and the cursings because they were accepting a conditional covenant as their uh, constitution, if you will, as their, as their operating basis for when they would occupy the land. All right? Now that is obsolete and growing old and ready to disappear. Because under the new covenant, they're going to be in the, in the land, but they're going to be in the land for blessing only, no more curses. There will never again be a curse upon the Jewish people with Jesus Christ seated on the throne of David. So those themes are, are vital to understand. And really, I believe the author of Hebrews is taking it for granted that he, the recipients of this epistle know all of these details. He's writing to priests, he's writing to Jewish people that have this framework already in mind as he reviews the history here in this way. So, clearly, if it's given to people whose fathers, when it says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the hand on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now that's key. This was an Exodus event, covenant. So new covenant replaces that. It replaces the Mosaic law. It does not replace Abrahamic covenant. That was not the day he brought them out of Egypt. It does not replace the Davidic covenant. That was not the day he brought them out of the land of Egypt. The new covenant is only the replacement for Mosaic law. Puts that completely off the table and gets rid of it. So not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them up out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. They did not continue in it. They actually broke it. An eternal covenant cannot be broken. An unconditional covenant cannot be broken. But Mosaic law was neither. It was not unconditional and it was not eternal. It was filled with all kinds of conditions and it was very temporal. And so that's why it has to be replaced. In fact, the very day, that very moment when a prophecy is uttered, it becomes uh, replaceable. And we'll deal with that here this morning. When Jesus gave the first communion service, he spotlighted his unfinished business in the coming kingdom. So let's pick up on this again. I know we touched on some of this. I want to make sure we're solid and then move on. We'll talk about what's obsolete and growing old, ready to disappear. We're going to conclude this chapter here. But first of all, let's go to Matthew 26 and let's pretend we're not in the church. Let's go to Matthew 26 and try to put ourselves back into a mindset of a Jewish believer in the first century and you know nothing about the church age, you know nothing about the royal family of God, you know nothing about Jews and Gentiles being united together into one person, you know nothing about any of that. You're an Old Testament believer. You're under the law. And days are coming. Okay? 
And you're living in this anticipation that days are coming. You've had prophets telling you about these days are coming. You've even had a calendar spelled out where Daniel has said, look, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, then days are coming. A kingdom is on the way. A kingdom is coming from heaven. That's your mindset. And you're a Jewish believer in that mindset. The biggest hitch in the get-along is Jesus is getting ready to die. (laughs) Wait a minute. We thought Messiah was going to live forever. What's happening now? I'm going to die. And this was the biggest problem that the disciples had. So they get together in this upper room in Matthew 26. And um, they're having Passover, of course. Jesus is going to fulfill Passover when he's on the cross. They're having Passover here the night before. They're having this dinner amongst themselves. And then, um, then he teaches them something new, something that's not a part of the Passover ritual. He's going to give them a remembrance, a memorial. So um, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with his 12 disciples and they were eating. He said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they said, uh, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord, including Judas. Judas uh, is a part of this whole act innocent denial mode. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. And the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. All right. And then while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now here's an element that's not a part of the Old Testament ritual, not a part of Israel's Passover observance, but it is a part of our communion observance. This is what he's giving to the disciples on this night. It's going to be given to the church after the Pentecost for a church observance. And, and so the big question is now, why is this both, why is this a bridge between Israel's observance and what are we doing in our church observance? Okay, and we're going to answer that question for you here this morning. So uh, he says, take, eat, this is my body. And and, uh, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Now they're going to be drinking, but he talks about it being poured out. So drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. All right, now here's where we got all these details, and I think it's important that we we try to keep track of all of them because there's church information here. They just don't have eyes to see it yet. They don't have ears to hear it yet. There's information that really we don't get in the canon until uh, 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul gives the communion doctrine there. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. And he talks about why communion is a remembrance back, but also a proclamation looking forward. And I think this is the key. If we can, if we can give it the label, unfinished business. That may be the best thing we can do for ourselves to try to keep it uh, straight. If we can keep that label unfinished business, then we recognize that there's something that's being held in suspense. Okay, 
And Jesus indicates that here. Unfinished business. Because He instructs them to drink and He doesn't drink. He, exp- he instructs them to drink and He doesn't. And then He mentions how it's poured out. He's going to pour Himself out the next day on the cross. And that's what this represents. There's a drinking and there's a pouring out. What do we do when we have communion? Thankfully, we drink. Yeah, nobody pours it out. That would make a mess of the carpet and everything else. What a wreck that would be, okay? No, we drink. But we drink in anticipation of a drink we haven't had yet, of a drink that's coming. Think of it as a toast, if you will, of the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says here. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so the kingdom is coming. We're not there yet. He's not here yet. He's still in heaven. We're waiting for that kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're just not there yet. So if you think of it as unfinished business, then you have two things in view. You recognize that he was victorious at the cross, but that wasn't all there was to be done. He was victorious at the cross when he shed his blood, but there remains unfinished business as far as his blood being applied to the Jewish people, as far as his blood sanctifying them and bringing them under the rod of the new covenant. And so this this unfinished business will be helpful for us. So this is uh, my blood. And he does say, of the covenant. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jeremiah's new covenant. It's the only possibility in this context. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out, not yet sprinkled, not yet applied, but it is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All right. And so this is what he's talking about. When Jesus gave the first communion service, he spotlighted his unfinished business in the coming kingdom. And the church is blessed to proclaim that unfinished business in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 25. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 25. You can join me there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Everybody's tapping glass, which I can never hear. It used to be you could hear pages flipping. You could hear the... Uh, I just have bad hearing anyway. Okay, yeah, some of you have paper Bibles. I see that. All right. But this is, this is key. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So it is a tradition, it is a practice, and it is handed down to be observed and to be followed. Not forever, just until the rapture. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so there's what he accomplished at the cross. It's his body, it's given, he's broken. He died on the cross for our sins. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Okay, language very similar, almost identical to what we were reading in Matthew. It's closer to Luke than to Matthew, but either way, this is what he's giving his disciples. But now the explanation, as often as, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death forever until he comes until he comes the fact is every church age communion service is a reminder that jesus has unfinished business to do 
It's a reminder that he was victorious at the cross. The blood was shed. The blood has not yet been sprinkled. It's not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. The Jewish people have not yet been brought into their new covenant, have not been been brought into their earthly kingdom. And so we get to do that as a toast. That is our memorial because we're all saved by the past completed work of Jesus Christ. And the fact that the future his conquering in Armageddon, his ruling the world, his his being seated on the throne of of David, his judging of this world in righteousness. You see, none of that's happened yet. And and we're, we're okay with that. We can be saved without that happening yet. Israel cannot be saved without all that happening yet. All right, for them as a nation, for the for them to be saved, for the Jewish nation to have their national salvation, for them to enter into the land and have those things, all that unfinished business needs to be finished. All that unfinished business needs to be brought together. So, in many respects, every communion service we take part in as the Bride of Christ is not only a declaration of thankfulness on our behalf, <clears throat> on our behalf, but it's also a goad. It's designed as a provocation. It provokes Israel to jealousy. It's designed as a reminder that he has died on the cross. And for them to be saved, for the Jewish nation to have their national salvation, they need to acknowledge that. They have to embrace the Messiah whom they crucified. That becomes a huge deal. That becomes really the the biggest stumbling block that for 2,000 years has kept them from being saved has kept them from having their... Yes, they've got a nation of unbelief, but they don't have the millennial nation yet. You'll see what I mean as we, as we look at this. Before I advance, um, I've got to stress one more time, Exodus 24. Because this solves so many arguments when people get wrapped up around different things. Exodus 24. Because there are so many folks that, that point to 1 Corinthians 11 or 2 Corinthians 3 and they think that their end of argument proof text, the church is in the new covenant, and it's just the opposite. It is just the absolute opposite. Those, uh, those are end of argument proof texts that the church is not in the new covenant. <laughs> and here's why. Because you've got to recognize what the blood does, what the sacrifice does, and what it does not do. So in Exodus 24... You'll notice the sacrifice comes in verse 5. And uh, Moses is the he here. He sent young men of the sons of Israel. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And so there's sacrifice on the part of the tribes of Israel here as they do this. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Now why is he doing that? Okay, Again, keep in mind this concept of unfinished business. All right, so the death of the animal starts it, but it's not everything. And so there's a process of what follows. And so he took half of the blood, he put it in basins. And the other half of the blood, he sprinkled on the altar. All right, now that becomes significant, don't you think? If not, wait till we get to chapter 9, okay? Because Jesus is going to go to a heavenly altar and he's going to sprinkle it there with his own blood. But for now... There's blood that's set apart in basins. And then there's the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's accountability when the doctrine is taught, when the people receive it by faith. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be 
obedient. Now this becomes important because this is why he set apart that earlier blood. And as far as the typology of this and the fulfillment of this, Israel hasn't gotten here yet. Israel is still in the, uh, in the denial of verse 3, thinking they can do it themselves through human effort, and it's just not going to happen. Because they've already, they've already, without the blood being shed, they've already said, oh yeah, we'll do it. In verse 3, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. They were very boastful about that. <laughs> okay, bunch of liars. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it in their own human effort? Of course not. That's why they need this blood. That's why they need this covenant. All right. So now the sacrifice has been made. The blood has been set apart. The altar has been cleansed. The people are ready now to accept it by faith and be sprinkled with the blood, or not, as the case may be. So he took the book of the covenant, read it, They said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So here's the the key. If you uh, ask yourself, well, when is it, what triggers the effectiveness of a covenant? What triggers it? When does it go into effect? What's, what's What's that drop dead moment where now it's effective? Say, Is it when the animal dies or is it when the blood is sprinkled? It's when the blood is sprinkled, not only when it's sprinkled, but when it's sprinkled in the the context of their acceptance and their oath. They had to accept it by faith in their oath that they make here. That hasn't happened yet. That can't happen until the second advent. We'll study why that can't happen, why that obstacle is there. The cross is actually a stumbling block to them. Is keeping them from coming to this moment. It's going to take the tribulation to discipline them to the point where the cross stops being a stumbling block and it starts to become their rock of escape. Okay? And it takes tribulation to do it. So, when is it effective? And really, it comes down to that. It comes down to that. And in, in fact, last Friday, not two Fridays ago, three Fridays ago, when, it doesn't matter, whenever it was. On a recent Friday, I was in a conference call with Pastor uh, uh, Robbie Dean of West Houston Bible Church. There were 20 of us on a Friday morning go-to-meeting conference, video conference, and we're going through the New Covenant. We're going through different principles here. Uh, And Christopher Cohn had written a book, and we're critiquing it chapter by chapter. We're going through. And one of the instructors, one of the authors of a chapter was was walking us through his chapter. And here's what he was talking about. And then if you have a wedding coming up, you're going to like this, okay? Because he talks about there's a process for a covenant. There's a process for entering into that covenant. And it's a process that's not instantaneous, but that it does go into effect at a certain point. And so he used a wedding as his illustration. I thought it was beautiful. I loved what he was doing with this. So I'll share it with you here. It's it's sweet the way he does this. So you have a, a bride and a groom, and they're standing there, and you've started the wedding, Okay, so when you say, dearly beloved, we've gathered here today, does that make it official? Are they, are they married yet? When, when is that key moment? See, all right. And, and what he brings about, though, is he brings about um, the horrible circumstance. Well, what if you get halfway through the wedding and the groom drops dead right there on the spot? Okay, well... First of all, it's traumatic for a wedding, but, but 
is, is she now a widow? Is she legally his wife? And you know, was it effective yet? Does she collect his insurance? I mean, how does this work? All right. And so that's a, that's a question. So is it the opening prayer? Is it the, is it the uh, unity candle? Is it the song? Is it the rings? Is it the vows? Okay? It's the vows, the I will, the, uh, the vows before the Lord. And, uh, and even then we had an argument amongst ourselves. Well, what about the pronouncement? Is the pronouncement, or, well, the pronouncement's actually after the fact declaring what happened when they uttered their vows. He uttered his vows, she uttered his vows. The Lord heard those vows. Okay? And back to New Covenant now, as the blood gets sprinkled, the, the hearing of the, of the law in reading the book, and they're hearing it and they're saying their vow in faith, that's the New Covenant. So he sprinkles them with the blood to testify to that. Anyway, this is what we're talking about. So right now, if you can imagine a wedding that's on hold for 2,000 years, okay? Imagine uh, because the animal, the, the animal has died, the blood has been set aside in bowls, okay? In other words, Jesus died on the cross. He went to the heaven and he sprinkled the altar there. But the rest of the blood is still set aside in bowls, it has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. It's still set apart. Reason being is because they have not yet heard in faith the words of this law. Okay, And so the whole span between first advent and second advent is now waiting for Israel to accept their Messiah. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard testimony of faith. If you talk about um, maybe... You can imagine there's unbelievers that have obstacles to getting saved. They, uh, they want to get saved. Somebody's preaching the gospel. But boy, they got things in their past and they, they think, I just don't think God can forgive me for that. They just don't think that they could get saved having done what they've done. And then they have these stumbling blocks. They have these hang-ups. And they just think, I've, I've talked to people like this. They say, you don't know what I've done. You don't, I don't think I can get saved. I'm not savable. I said, I don't care what you've done. Jesus died for it. It's on the cross. It was judged. Whatever you've done. And that's our blessing. Well, if we can relate that now on a national scale, Israel crucified their Messiah. (laughs) Okay? They've been waiting for Messiah to come. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. They have to come to grips with the fact that Messiah came and they crucified him. That now he's going to come again. But he can't come again until they are doctrinally oriented to the Messiah whom they crucified. They must look upon him whom they pierced. They must say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, having already rejected him and put him on a cross. So you talk about a stumbling block, a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. The biggest thing that's hindering the second advent of Jesus Christ right now is it requires Jewish repentance for him to come back. And we'll demonstrate that as we see in these upcoming verses. All right. So think of it in terms of unfinished business. Here in Hebrews 8, here in uh, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, it's all unfinished business. We're talking about, and, and the whole book of Hebrews is in this context, that Jesus was victorious at the cross and he's waiting now to come back to apply that blood to the Jewish people, to usher in his millennial kingdom. That is when the covenant will go into effect but it requires Israel to accept it. All right. Which is how we can identify here in verse 13 
that is obsolete and growing old and ready to disappear. Hebrews 8.13 It's obsolete, it's growing old, and it's ready to disappear. And this, uh, I think I've confessed before, maybe more than once, I used to hate this verse. I hated this verse. I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. I thought, what do you mean obsolete, ready to disappear? What do you mean becoming obsolete? It's done obsolete, okay? Ready to disappear, it's growing old, it's over and done with. And I, Because I kept viewing Calvary as the end, as the everything, as he died on the cross, law is over and done with. Failing to realize that the death was not the totality of what it takes to execute a covenant. And that the application of the blood is still pending. And so in a sense, Jesus is in the middle of what the cross was all about. Okay? Not for saving you and me, not for giving us eternal life. That's all tetelestai it is finished. But as far as applying that blood to Israel and bringing the Jewish people into their kingdom, he's only halfway through that process. The rest of it requires Israel by faith to, uh, to accept, to utter the vow, and to be sprinkled with the blood. And that, of course, takes the repentance, which takes the tribulation, which means it can't happen today. Which means Mosaic Law is still obsolete. It is still growing old. It's not done yet. It's still growing old. Law is still good, even for us in the church. Law is good if you use it lawfully. Just don't try to use it grace. You know, problem is people take grace and try to use grace lawfully. That's a, that's a train wreck. And then they take law and try to use law gracefully. That's a train wreck. Grace is grace, law is law. And keep them like that. And then you can use law. Just use it lawfully. And use it to point people to grace, and then you got the best of both worlds. All right. So it's becoming obsolete and growing old. It's ready to disappear. And it's not just ready to disappear. What finally caused me to relax is when I finally read it for what it was saying. When he said a new covenant. That wasn't at the cross. That wasn't at the cross. That was in Jeremiah's day. That was in Jeremiah 31. That was 586 years before the cross. Or longer. 590 years. All right. When he said a new covenant. The moment moment Jeremiah said, Behold, days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. From that day on, this covenant was obsolete, growing old, and ready to disappear. From the time of Jeremiah's pronouncement, Mosaic Covenant was destined for disappearance. It was destined for disappearance. And it's just taken now 2,600 years since uh, Jeremiah uttered those words. It still is obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. From the time of Jeremiah's pronouncement onward. I mean, as soon as he said a new covenant, Israel should have been thrilled Yes, thank you. That old covenant was a covenant of death. That Mosaic law, none of us could none of us could keep it. That law on tablets made of stone. You remember they put it into the into the ark. You wonder why the ark's missing these days. They're not going to need those tablets of stone when he gives them the new covenant. His laws are going to be written upon their heart, the tablets of human hearts. And so, from the time of Jeremiah's pronouncement, the Mosaic covenant was destined for disappearance. 
But from the time of Jesus' pronouncement, bring it forward to the cross now, and Jesus' pronouncement in the upper room when He's given communion, from the time of Jesus' pronouncement, the Mosaic Covenant became imminently ready for disappearance. There is nothing stopping it from happening now. He has already shed the blood. It's set apart in the bowls. It's ready to be sprinkled. All the provision's been made. The last thing waiting is what? Israel's repentance. The Jewish people have to accept the Christ whom they crucified. The Jewish people have to acknowledge, have to call upon Him whom they pierced. They have to call upon the Lord so as to be saved. And so now it's, I mean, now it's imminent. Now it's ready. And I tell you, if that trumpet sounds today and the church gets raptured out of here, then imminently Mosaic law is obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. Because what happens when the church is gone? The Jews get their stewardship back. It's back to a, a, a dispensation of Israel, the priesthood, the law, all those things back operating again in their obsolete way, waiting for the Jewish people to accept their Messiah. So it's a neat thing. Let's, uh, let's take some time with this then. Um, and I'm going to start with the last verse first. Let me start with Romans 10.4 and you'll see why. Romans 10.4. This was another passage that really helped me clear up my dislike for Hebrews 10.13 or Hebrews 8.13. Because I was so indignant, so insistent. What do you mean ready to disappear? It's gone. What do you mean growing old? It's dead. If you're dead, you're not getting any older. You're dead. I wanted Mosaic law to be dead when Christ died on the cross. The veil of the temple was written too. It is finished. Okay. And then I started to learn, well, wait a minute. What's finished? What's unfinished? What remains is unfinished business. And um, why? I said, Christ is the end of the law. And then I read the rest of the words in the verse. Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Notice, to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Notice, everyone who believes. That's why faith, that's why Christ is the end of the law for us. We believe. We can't be in the church until we believe. So when you believe and you get saved, you're in the church, and guess what? Church age, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. That's why we're not under law, we're under grace. But Israel, today, the modern state of Israel, they're in the land, there's Jewish people in the land, but are they there in, in belief or unbelief? They're there in unbelief, as per Isaiah chapter 11 and other prophecies of the Old Testament. They're, Netanyahu is not on a Davidic throne, okay? It's not Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron. And so they're there in unbelief. And if they're in unbelief, why would Christ be the end of the law? Not for them. What does verse 10, 10, 4 of Romans 10, 4 say? Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Well, duh. Finally, it hit me. Oh, that's why the law is obsolete and growing old and ready to disappear because they haven't believed yet. Christ is the end of the law to those who believe. So when they get saved right? The 144,000 Jewish evangelists in the tribulation, are they going to be under law? No, because they're going to get saved. They're going to believe. 
And more and more as the Jewish people repent, as the Jewish people understand that they crucified their Christ, but they need Him, when they believe, Christ will be the end of the law for them too. Ultimately speaking, He'll be the end of the law for everybody. Because all Israel will be saved. That's going to be a blessing for them. All right. So, you have Jeremiah's pronouncement where it was destined. It had to happen. But then there's Jesus' pronouncement. Now it's imminent. Because he says, this is now the blood that's going to put that into effect. Becomes imminently ready for disappearance. Now here's some other concepts. I want to take these in order as well. Let's actually... Okay, we'll do Matthew 21, then Matthew 23. Now I'm changing my mind. Let's go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. I may regret this, but let's let's try it. Psalm 118. You know, when I listen to those radio guys, Chuck Swindoll and David Jeremiah and all those... They always seem to know what they're doing. They never change their mind in the middle of a radio broadcast and decide. I think they also have editors, research assistants. All right. Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29. And I will resist, furiously resist uh, reading the first 18 verses of this chapter, but I recommend that you do at some point, because um, there's a personal deliverance, there's a national deliverance, there's tribulation that Israel has to go through, and until they go through that tribulation, they will not, until they're surrounded, until they're nearly extinguished, they will not have their salvation. But we get to verse 19 then. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. No unbeliever will enter the millennial kingdom. Only believers. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. So the Jewish people have to know who their Savior is. They have to know who Messiah is. They have to know that He's their Savior, Redeemer. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Okay, now here's how it's given. It's given in Psalms. It's given prophetically. The same stone that's been rejected is the same stone that will be accepted. The same stone that will be the foundation of their kingdom. Now we, we, we get this, okay? But I think sometimes we steal this. Sometimes we think that uh, that foundation stone can only have one application. And it's got to be the foundation stone of the church. Okay, we make that application, but th- the application here is not the church. It's the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. So this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. When God is at work, God makes it happen. It's not human effort making it happen. It's not people trying to make it happen and then hope that God's happy with this kingdom we built for him. Okay, Remember all those people that wanted to make Jesus king because he could multiply loaves and fishes and feed everybody. And they said, wow, let's make him our king. And Jesus wanted no part of that. He went away to pray and, and uh, walked across the water and got away from him. All right. The, so the Lord's the one that's at work. 
It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's the day when Jesus establishes the kingdom. Okay? And I know we apply this verse today and make it a daily thing. Today in the church age, we say, okay, today, Sunday, December 23rd, 2019, this is the day the Lord has made. Okay, we make a secondary application of that. I want to rejoice each day in what God is doing. But really, this is a a messianic promise of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's to be rejoiced over. So, O Lord, save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Now this verse becomes key. Until the nation can sing this, Jesus can't come back. O Lord, do save. Do save. Do save. Okay, we beseech you. Do say, like do Lord, and some of those. There's doctrine in some of those that we don't think that's there. Okay, do save. The Aramaic for this is Hosanna. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the children sang it because the children knew their verses. The children were humble to sing it. The Pharisees were they singing it? The religious leaders were they singing it? No, they were too arrogant. They hated Jesus. They were not about for the moment to shout, Save Lord, Hosanna. Save Lord. Oh, do save, we beseech you. Oh, Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I think that's shalom there for the prosperity. He is a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom of peace. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. All right. This is what has to be uh, accepted by the Jewish nation, by the religious leaders, by the political leaders, by the nation as a whole. If the nation as a whole does not accept Psalm 118, and specifically Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah they crucified. He is the, the rock. He is their Savior. Until they accept Him, Jesus can't come back at Second Advent. That's the criteria. All right, so now we get Matthew. Matthew 21 and Matthew 23. Yeah, it wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't the tribal elders. It wasn't the nation as a whole. It was only the children humble enough to accept Him. The religious leaders kept trying to shut them up. <laughs> they're singing Hosanna and they're like, make them stop, make them stop. Okay, because, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Jesus says, you can't shut them up. All right. Matthew 21. So um, they find the colt and uh, they bring it so Jesus can ride in. This fulfills uh, the prophecy there. The disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the roads, and others were cutting branches from the trees. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. It should be Palm Monday, actually. And uh, spreading them in the roads, and the crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna, that's do save. It's Aramaic for do save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They have to identify him. There was salvation in no other name. They have to know when they need a Savior, the only Savior for them is the one they crucified 2,000 years ago. And that's who they have to turn to in the coming tribulation when Antichrist is bent on their, on their extermination. All right. So Jesus entered the temple, drove out the money changers, and uh, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. This was a national rejection of Messiah. They will demand his crucifixion. They will demand Barabbas' release. And uh, the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? I think if you go to the Luke parallel on this, uh, he says, you know, you try to make them shut up, the stones will start to sing Hosanna. The stones will start to cry out in uh, the fulfillment of this. Now, that's chapter 21. What happens two chapters later in chapter 23? He's pronouncing woe. And, goodness, all of these woes and the Pharisees, the scribes, they're all being uh, rightly identified. And um, they have guilt that's coming to them, especially since they're so self-righteous. That's the biggest sin of all. In verse 29, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of blood. Yes, they would. They'd have been at the front of the line. Okay? This is one of those second-class conditions, this wishful thinking on a human's part. They're totally wrong about this. But they feel better about themselves by building all these monuments to the, to the martyred prophets. And they're going to they're crucify the Christ. They're going to do worse than any of those other people ever did. So uh, you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? That's pretty tough. All right. So um, down to verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. How does the sovereignty of God operate in tandem with human volition? He wants to gather them. They're not willing. He wants to, but they're not willing. So what does he do? He takes his blood, and he puts it in the bowl, he sets it aside. He cleanses the altar, so the heavenly altar is ready to go. But he can't apply that blood to the Jewish people until... They're repentant until they're prepared. 
Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, and here we have it again from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. National Israel must look upon him whom they pierced and they must cry out to their crucified Savior as their only Savior. Then he can come. Then he can come. So Mosaic Covenant is imminently ready for disappearance. All it takes is for Israel to repent and to accept the Messiah that they crucified, calling out upon Jesus Christ for their salvation. Father, I thank you for Hebrews. I thank you for a book that contains such deep things, Father, from the deep things of the Melchizedek priesthood to the deep things of Mosaic law versus New Covenant. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding so that we would see how our Savior is suited, how He is uniquely suited to be the mediator of this new covenant, and how we are suited, we are equally suited to be the servants with our mediator, with our Lord. So Father, open our eyes to see these truths that we might uh, be effective in our work assignment, that we might be effective in our priesthood, that we might not be counterproductively striving in a political endeavor, in a crusader arrogance, trying to make your kingdom happen through human effort. These are the dealings of the Lord and they are marvelous in our eyes. When, when the Lord does it, it will be clearly His work, not ours. So Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for bringing Austin Bible Church to the point where we can receive the book of Hebrews as You've been giving to us. We thank You, Father, and we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.